Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your Son who taught us how to pray. And as he has taught us that we would pray that your name would be revered and that your kingdom would come and your will be done, now he gives us the, the grace, the permission, so to speak, to narrow ourselves down to something as simple as bread. And we ask that as we consider what this means for us, that you would lay us low in humility and lift us up in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 11, verses 1, 2, and 3. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And we move over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. We'll start in verse 9. Jesus said, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. You may recall from a time long before Jesus was born, you recall a time when the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt and they were sorely oppressed in their slavery. So sorely oppressed were they that they called out and they groaned out to the Lord for salvation. And they waited hundreds of years before this groaning came, and the Lord raised up for them a, a Savior, a Deliverer, Moses. And at first they rejected him, but a few decades later they embraced him. And Moses, in his work of delivering the Israelites from bondage to Pharaoh, he and his brother Aaron, they engage in a, a sort of battle of the gods. And in the end, of course, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob wins in this battle of the gods, and the final victory is struck, so to speak, when the Lord sends his angel to go and strike down the firstborn of every household in Egypt, from the least to the greatest, even including the son of Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh is finally moved by this, and he releases the Israelites, the Hebrews, and they go, he changes his mind, and then he sends out his army, and you have this defenseless crew of thousands upon thousands of refugees, and they have no weapons, of course. And then out comes this army from Pharaoh, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful army in the world. And the Israelites find themselves, in some sense, you might say, between a rock and a hard place. You have the, the Egyptians on one side, and you have the Red Sea on the other, and as I'm sure most are familiar, the Lord parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk through, and then he swamps Pharaoh's army in the sea. This is an incredible deliverance. It's an incredible deliverance that the people of God would remember and sing and celebrate even a thousand years later. We still celebrate it now today. But you hop forward a few chapters into Exodus 16, and we find the Israelites have, have come to the edge of the wilderness in their wanderings. And as these crowds of thousands upon thousands upon thousands, as they, as they look ahead, they see wilderness. And everybody knows you can't forage enough food in the wilderness, in the desert, to feed tens of thousands of people. And so what did they do? But they begin to grumble. And they begin to complain. And we read just a, 
a short little bit of this grumbling as we turn to Exodus 16, verse 3. The Israelites say, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, just like the Egyptians had died, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, isn't that quite the thing to say? I mean, what, what, how ungrateful is this? The Lord has rescued you. He's, he's brought you out of this bondage. And you had groaned for this salvation. And these people had seen the Lord pass over their homes as, as the destruction comes. It reminds me of when I was, when I was in seminary. And uh, what, towards the, the end of the time in seminary, there was a tornado. Mississippi has many tornadoes. And there was a tornado. And I watched from the campus as the tornado went through, went through the community and headed right towards my home where Melanie was and of course with Caleb in in her womb and and I watched as this tornado comes and what does it do but it picks up and it hops right over our house and the hearts of the other seminarians and it drops down and it goes to the cemetery which was next to us ripping apart all the trees what an incredible salvation. What an incredible relief. Well, well, the Israelites have seen the angel of the Lord pass by their house, their homes, and destroy all the rest. And what did they say? Oh, would that we had died in Egypt when we had meat pots and all the bread that we could want. Never mind the Egyptians were killing us and beating us and enslaving us, but oh, would that we had died. You want to just slap them across the face and say, you ungrateful wretches. But remember the words of the prophet Nathan to David. You are the man. Don't we do very much the same thing? Have we not received a greater salvation than they, saved not from Pharaoh, but from Satan, saved not from bondage of, of slavery and making pyramids or whatever they were forced to make, but slaved from bondage to a, a much more heinous master, slaved from bondage to sin. And if the, Israelites, if the Israelites slandered God in their grumbling, certainly we who receive a far greater salvation slander God whenever we fail to trust Him. And so the Israelites, after they grumbled, the Lord, instead of destroying them, He provides for them. And he tells Moses, this is what will happen. Every morning when the dew is laid across the ground in the wilderness, when it evaporates, left behind will be bread. And sure enough, that first day it was bread on the ground, and the Israelites found it, and they called it manna. And manna means, what is it? What is it? Well, it's, it's a miracle. It's miracle bread. And every day they had enough to eat. And they tried to hoard it at first, thinking, oh, I will store up enough that I can make it through maybe a week or a month, and every night it would rot. Except for on Friday, when they would have two days' worth, so they need not go out and get it on the Sabbath. And every day, day by day by day, they were entirely dependent on God for their needs. And day by day by day, all the way until the day they crossed over the Jordan into perhaps through the Jordan, into the promised land, God met their needs every day of the 40 years. And we do have needs. The Israelites had need, needs in the wilderness, and we have needs. Westminster Catechism teaches us that our needs are an account of sin. 
Adam had, had no lack of resources. He had no needs in this respect in the garden. But on account of Adam's sin, the Lord comes to him and says, I have cursed the ground. Now there will be futility in your work. Now there will be weeds and thorns that will choke out your crops. And, and with that comes what economists call scarcity. There is, there is a scarce amount of resources. And so we have this need to be provided for. And so we pray, we pray that God would provide for us. And in praying that God would provide for us, we are praying for grace. And praying for grace is a holy prayer. Give us this day our daily bread is a prayer of confession. I don't mean it's a prayer of confession in the sense that it is a prayer of confession of sin. That's one way to use the word confession. But another way to use the word confession is that we say that we confess that we believe something is true. That's why we have things like the Westminster Confession, the Belgic Confession. They're things that we confess to believe in. We confess perhaps along with the creeds, like we confess with the Athanasian Creed about Jesus, that Jesus is completely God and completely human with a rational soul and flesh equal to God as regards His divinity and yet less than the Father as regards His humanity. We, we confess things that we believe to be true and so we confess that we have needs because we do but then as well we confess that God and God alone has the power to meet our needs that God is the one from whom every good gift comes from and this is exactly what James says in James 1:17. every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We need God for every good gift. And every good gifts, every good gift comes from Him. And we need, we need God even for simple things like bread. For those of you who are gluten-free, you can put in whatever it is that you eat into the category of bread. But we need things for simple things like enough food to survive for the next day. Now, not every good gift has to be expressly spiritual. I think we have sometimes in our minds that to pray for physical things is sort of like a, a lesser holy prayer. But that's not how Jesus frames it. Jesus frames praying for things that are needs in a, a physical sense. He, he says these are, these are good prayers. It gives us kind of a, a permission, even an instruction to pray for this. And we remember that, that God made the creation, a physical creation, and God declared it to be good. So things like food, these are good things, and God has given them to us as good gifts. And so we, we ask for God to give us this food. Now consider another time in the life of Jesus, not uh, back in the Exodus, but in Jesus' ministry. There, crowds by the thousands followed Jesus. And a few times we read that they lost track of time, perhaps the crowds did, and so it draws near to evening, and the disciples realize we have thousands of people, and we don't have very much food. They don't have very much food either, and they probably don't have enough resources to go and buy the food they need in the local towns, and so they present Jesus with this problem. You kind of get the idea from them, well, whatever shall we do? 
And in both cases, Jesus takes the bread that they have, he breaks it, and he breaks it, and he breaks it, and he uses it to feed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. 4,000 men, 5,000 men, and untold numbers of women and children. If Jesus made and gave bread, then it must be a good thing. And so we are instructed to pray that God would give us our daily bread. This does not mean just food, but it means all of our basic needs, things that we need to live. And so we pray that God would give us all of our basic necessities, that he would provide for us. But as with the other parts and other petitions in the Lord's Prayer, there are some things that prevent us from praying this kind of prayer. And the the first of these obstacles to the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, the first of these obstacles is faithlessness. There's a a man in 19th century England by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller was uh, a man who was, through the course of events, converted. And as he was in the, the southwest of England, he began to take care of orphans. At first, just, just a few orphans, but then in time, as the Lord blessed him and as he continued to work, eventually they had an orphanage consisting of sort of a dormitory buildings that could house over 2,000 orphans. And the, the incredible thing about George Mueller is that he committed, and those who worked with him committed, never to asking for a single shilling of money from anybody to help. He committed himself that if the Lord called him to this work to care for these orphans, which is, of course, a very holy, a holy work. If the Lord had committed him to this work, the Lord would provide for the work. And so he never asked even for a single shilling. And it's incredible how the Lord did provide. Sometimes the Lord provided well in advance with generous gifts, but oftentimes the Lord provided in the moment. A couple of the more dramatic stories, perhaps, is once, when there were all kinds of orphans that needed to eat breakfast, one of, the, one of the helpers in the ministry comes to George and says, George, we have no food. We have actually nothing to put before the orphans for breakfast today. And George says, well, we will pray. And as they prayed, the, the baker comes and knocks on the door in kind of a, a frazzled way and says, George, for some reason I woke up at 2 o'clock in, this, in the morning And I began to bake bread because I felt compelled that you were going to need bread. I I made all this bread. Can you use it? And there was bread. And then the milkman rode by and his cart broke down right in front of the orphanage. The milkman knocks on the door and says, George, I I can't deliver all this milk on time. Can you use it? So there was bread and there was milk. The Lord provided literally the daily bread that was needed. Other, another story, just one more, is that the, the boiler in the orphanage broke. And it was a cold season. So what do you do when you have orphans and you have no heat? Well, George prayed that there would be a wind from the south. And there was a south wind. And he prayed, without telling them, he prayed that the men who would come and fix the boiler would work very hard and very diligently and get it done in a short amount of time. And the men came, and they volunteered, even insisted on working through the night to fix the boiler. He prayed in a holy quest to care for orphans made in the image of God and to share the gospel with them. 
He prayed that God would provide, and the Lord did provide. And I, I suspect a number of us, our, our hearts begin to race, and our minds begin to spin at the thought of even having to rely on God for one meal, let alone for a lifetime of ministry to thousands upon thousands of orphans. Our lives spin because we, we are so risk-averse. We are afraid of putting ourselves, even for simple things, into the hands of God in a position of need. And we're not only a risk averse for ourselves, but we want to make sure everybody else is insulated from risk as well. And where does that come from? Generally speaking, that comes from faithlessness. Just one example of this. I'm, I'm going to use an example from this same kind of thing in a couple weeks, Lord willing. It's something that kind of sticks under my craw a little bit, uh, bur, maybe burr in my saddle. And one of the ways that, well, that I see how this faithfulness works out is a piece of advice given to young couples so often. It's a young couple, a godly man and a godly woman, and they would like to be married, and then mom or dad or somebody else comes in and says, let me tell you how it's going to be. You both need to have jobs, you need to have no debt, you have to have all your things in order, and once your financial world is entirely in order and there's no risk whatsoever, then you can be married. What a terrible piece of advice. It, it, it's like saying, well, no, you can't be poor together. It, is it so wrong for, for kids to be poor together? Is it so wrong for them to have to pray? I mean, is it wrong for them to have to pray Lord, give us this day our daily bread. How better can you start a married life? How better could you start a marriage that, Lord willing, will last for decades than to be able to look back for all those decades and say, look at how the Lord provided for us. And we began with nothing, and God gave us everything we need, even if it was by the day. What you say to children, what you say to young godly couples who want to be married is this, this prayer is not for you. Right? Maybe Jesus meant that other people should pray for their daily bread, but he didn't mean this for you. And what do you do? You rob them of an, rob them of an opportunity for faith. You rob them of an opportunity for faith to see together how God provides. We have this, this aversion to risk because we don't want to pray simple prayers that require faith. And so we have faithlessness. Why is it so bad? Why is it so bad for a young couple to be poor together? I actually think, in perhaps my humble opinion, that it is good for a young couple to begin with nothing and trust on God for everything. Now, that doesn't mean that we act foolishly. It doesn't mean that we act foolishly. We don't, we don't ask that God is going to fill in the gaps that we create, right? Buying a house with a mortgage we can't afford or buying a car that we can't afford with car payments or spending all of our money on Mountain Dew or video games or, or $1,000 smartphones and then praying that somehow God will fill in the gaps, that's not, that's not faith. That's being stupid. Okay, we, we, don't, we don't do that kind of foolish thing. We don't put ourselves in a position where we have everything else that we want and we say, well, I don't have any food. Please give me the food. That's not how we do. But, but, to, but to act in faith 
genuinely needing something from God because we have put ourselves in the holy position of marriage, that's not foolishness, that is faith. Now I suspect some of you are going to blitz it out of here. I hope I'm wrong, but you're going to blitz it out of here and you're going to make a beeline for your kid or maybe for your 14-year-old who, who at some point, Lord willing, will be married and you're going to say, you know, the pastor gave really bad advice today. Let me, let me tell you how this is really supposed to work. Well, you, you can do that. They are, after all, your children. But it will be on your head if you refuse them an opportunity to trust in the Lord who promises to provide. The second obstacle to this, perhaps on the other end of the spectrum, is a sense of self-sufficiency. That is, that we never perceive ourselves to actually need to pray this. We have so much, and the Lord has already given us so much that we fall into a position where we say, well, I already have my daily bread, and I actually have my daily bread from now until the day I die. If I live to be 200 years old, I would still have my daily bread. And that is a dangerous place to be. It is not universally dangerous. It is not, uh, it is not dangerous to the extent that there can be no godliness in that, of course, but there is, it is a dangerous place to be. The proverb says this in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. It's a prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Who is the Lord? Oh, those are dangerous words to say. Who is the Lord? We say that when we have no perceived need of him. Who is the Lord? I don't need the Lord. I'm doing just fine. Now, I don't think any of us would ever actually say that, but it may very well be in our hearts, and we would act that way in our lives. And Jesus speaks of the danger of wealth in a very similar situation, in a very similar way. He says it is harder for a rich man to go through the eye of an, or for a camel, sorry, it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And some of you have heard this kind of qualified, well, the eye of a needle is a, is a little gate in the bottom of the wall in Jerusalem, and camels had to get on their knees. It means you have to be a, a humble rich man. That, that's, that's not at all true. Jesus is saying the eye of a needle and a camel. In other words, it's impossible. Except, Jesus says, with man, things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. But to be in a position where there is no perceived need of God is a very dangerous place to be. Because our wealth tricks us and numbs us to seeing just how much we really do need the Lord. And so perhaps for some of us, the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, should morph a little bit into, help me to see that this day I need you for my daily bread. Can the person who says, who is the Lord, in the very next breath, say, give me this day my daily bread? No, but self-sufficiency, which is pride, kills humble prayer. But as we've seen before, this prayer is framed not in the negative, though there are, of course, negative things implied by it, but it's framed in the positive. It's framed in give me. Not, not don't give me, but give me this day. Give us this day our 
daily bread. And as it is, we pray two things in this. We pray, first of all, confessing that we have a need, and secondly, we pray that God has the power and the willingness to meet our needs. And we pray these things in faith. And I know that some of you have faced this kind of need in the face. You have, as it were, stared it down. I, I have had conversations, of, of course, over uh, the majority of seven years with, with a number of you in We've, we've talked about different needs that have been kind of stared in the face and different challenges that have met, been met in faith. And one that I, I hear perhaps more often than all others is, has to do with, with the paying of, of Christian, school edu- uh, Christian education tuition. It's particularly challenging because tuition always seems to go up more than inflation goes up. And it's particularly challenging because you're paying tuition thousands upon thousands of dollars a year for the Christian school when you have young children and the least amount of money. And so you, you find yourself in this, in this difficult spot. You, you commit yourself, you believe that it's worth it to, to commit your, your children to having a, a comprehensive Christian worldview rather than having them committed to the, to the government school where they'll be educated in a sort of a secular materialist worldview which is embraced in those curriculums. And so you, you commit yourself to paying this tuition at the, at the expense of maybe a retirement fund or luxury spending or whatever else it may be, and you, you find yourself in this place where you're not sure where the next tuition check is going to come from. How am I going to put food on the table, gas in the car, pay the mortgage, and pay the tuition bill for the next month? And so where else do you have to turn? But you pray. And the same story I've heard again and again and again is somehow the money was there. The Lord provides. Sometimes he provides in one way, sometimes he provides in another, but the Lord provides. And I know that for some of you, you're in that spot right now. You're in that spot right now where you're not sure where the check is going to come from. So this is a good prayer for you. Ask for the Lord's help. Trust that he'll give it, and then watch as he does. I remember a man, a bit older man in our church when I was growing up. He was often, for one reason or another, he was often out of work. And as a, as a child, that's so far from my experience, I didn't really understand what that would mean and kind of what kind of temptations would come with being perpetually out of work. And Though you might expect this kind of man to be a a bit of a a gloomy guy, he was anything but. He was one of the most joyful, kind, and rejoicing men I have ever met. And and he he sticks out in my mind as being particularly joyful. And, And isn't it a testament to faith that a man who had less than almost everybody else in the church had more joy than almost everybody else in the church because his needs were met day by day by day by day, always by faith. It's a testament to faith. We grow in faith when we are in positions of need. We grow in faith in positions of need. And, and, And where is our faith? What is the foundation of our faith? 
foundation of our faith isn't that I can make it happen. The foundation of our faith isn't that I can somehow declare that there's going to be bread on the table. The foundation of our faith is in God. God who provides. Our foundation of our faith is in the Jesus who said, pray this prayer. Our foundation is in God who says he will and does care. Jesus talks about this in, in both parts of the Lord's Prayer, both in Luke and in Matthew. In Luke 11, verses 9 to 13, we read this, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? If you who are evil need know how to give good gifts, won't the Lord who is good give good gifts? Jesus says basically the same thing in Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Our God is a good Father, and He cares about His children. All you have to do is look at the cross to see that He cares about His children. And if He is a good Father, then we can expect that He will provide for us in a way that far outpaces what our other fathers, what our human fathers have done. Even the best of our human fathers is laced with sin to one degree or another, but God, who has no sin, who has all the resources in, in creation and outside of creation at His disposal, is He not able to provide for His people in their needs? Now, that, need, that word needs is an important word again. Right? This, is, this is not something that we, we pray, we say, well, uh, well, God provides for my needs and He provides for uh, uh, my, my fancy nails or he, he provides for my cable television and my needs or for the, the fancy car and my needs or, or, or the cable TV and my needs, whatever it is. It, we're not saying that God is going to provide you with all of your desires. It's a very different thing. Needs and desires are very different things. But when it comes to needs, food, shelter, clothing, holiness. God provides for our needs. And so the, the petition, the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, is a prayer of humility, and it is a prayer of faith. It's admitting a need and confessing that God can meet our need. Some of us are in a position where we need to pray those exact words. Some of us are in a position, maybe we should change the words and say, God, show me that I do need. Do you remember the story of Job? Job who had everything. And all of it was taken away in the matter of just a few moments. We have a need. Even the wealthy of us have a need for God to keep us and sustain us and provide for us. But before we conclude, I, I think we should notice just one precise word in what Jesus says here, which is that Jesus says that we should pray, give us this day. 
The prayer is not only for ourselves, but the prayer is for us, for us as the body of Christ. The prayer is that God will not only supply my needs, but that he will supply my brothers and sisters in the Lord their needs as well. And so as we pray, as we pray, we should be thinking and having in mind as well, who is it around me that has needs? How can I pray for their needs to be met as well? And maybe it will be that the Lord will lay on your heart somebody who has needs, and he will show you that you have the means to meet their needs. And maybe it means dropping off a bag of groceries at the house. Maybe it means taking a little cash and putting it in an envelope and sliding it in the church mailbox. Maybe it means going to the school and paying for a month of tuition. Whatever it is, we pray for each other. And it is our genuine desire that all of our needs are met, whatever those needs may be. But then we pray for our needs as well in the big things. We pray for enough sun and enough rain to have a harvest that feeds the people. We pray for wise government policies that lead to prosperity. And we pray for a charitable spirit between one image bearer and another. And in all of these things, we place ourselves humbly and willingly in the ever-capable, ever-living hands of our God. This is the God who split the Red Sea, who put the manna on the ground, who changed Xerxes' heart to send the people back to the Promised Land. This is the God who placed his own son on the cross to provide for our needs. And if he has already done that, then won't he who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow continue to provide for the needs of his people in this day? Well, of course he will. God never changes, and God is love. Let's pray together. Father, we recall that the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lord God, you are our peace and our provider. We humbly put ourselves in your hands. From the poorest of us to the richest of us, we confess our need for you, even for life itself. Do not give us so much that we forget that we have a need for you. Some of us have a greater capacity for handling wealth in a godly way than others. Do not give us more than we can handle. But, Father, we pray as well that you would not take so much from us that we would fall into the trap of stealing faithlessness and breaking your law. Give us our basic needs. Keep us from hunger, but also keep us from greed. Make us generous and ever ready to be the means by which you provide for your people. And as you gave salvation to Israel and then sustained them, so we recognize that Jesus is both our Savior and our Sustainer. We recall that he called himself the true bread that comes down from heaven. 
and said that if anyone eats of him, he will live forever. Father, as we turn to your son's table, we feast not on his flesh, but upon his spirit. We pray that you would nourish our souls with faith, so that we may live forever with him. Amen.